This hour is brought to you by CarX Tire and Auto, online at CarX.com. Matt Bowen. Two throws. This one aired out for Galloway. And with contact, is picked off. Intercepted by Matt Bowen. NFL writer and analyst for ESPN. The ball came out. Right now they're calling fumble. Matt Bowen knocked it out. Seven-year NFL veteran. We always joke with you about where you were selected in the draft. Is it weird for you to see Tom Brady out there? We were watching Tom Brady. My youngest boy, Ronnie, said, well, why aren't you still playing? (laughs) I said, well... Uh, Defensive back coach for IC Catholic football. One of the greatest things and the most rewarding things about being a high school coach is to see the impact it can have on your student athletes. Matt Bowen with Bernstein and Holmes on 670 The Score. Let Matt Bowen talk. Shut up. Matt Bowen's on Twitter at MattBowen41. He's with us on the Score Hotline presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. All right, Matt. Before we get to the games to come, let's find out your thoughts on what went as planned in what you saw last week, what didn't, what surprised you, what made your jaw drop, your takeaways. I think the first thing, and I think you guys will agree with me on this, is the Bengals' ability to control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball versus Buffalo. Their ability to run the ball downhill whenever they wanted to and their ability to create pressure against Josh Allen. That really surprised me because I thought they physically outplayed Buffalo in that football game. And it showed at multiple levels. You just mentioned the run game. What they did post-snap from a defensive perspective against Josh Allen to kind of change the picture for him post-snap and make him work through his drop. But I thought that was just a really high-level performance. And like we said last week with Joe Burrow, when the stage is big, he plays his best football. And he did again in horrible weather conditions out there. And what that team has done to get this point, that's the most impressive thing I saw last weekend. When it comes to the, the Cowboys and in-game situations, have, mm-hmm. have, have you ever seen anything as weird as, as what they had drawn up? And, and, <laughs> and, and D'Amico Ryan's calling a timeout like, are y'all serious? You're going to do this? All right. Well, I guess we'll just run over your center. <laughs> you ever seen anything that looked like that? <laughs> No, I mean, look, look, everyone has like that gadget play, end of game situation um, from an offensive perspective and what they think will work. And look, this is what happens on a Friday practice. You run it in practice and it goes for a touchdown, right? Because no one on defense really tries that hard. And he's trying to set up. You get two laterals or, or pitch backwards and the guy runs wide open for a touchdown. But that play had no chance from the start and absolutely no chance from the start. And on top of that, with Zeke playing center and getting bull rushed backwards. They throw a pass, and it's immediate tackle. And I'm talking a big-time form tackle, drive the wide receiver to the ground, the game's over. So they'll probably go back when they watch that tape and say, you know what, this just isn't it. And we're better in a situation with putting our position players in spots they're comfortable playing that can create some type of down-the-field activity when we have a shot. I don't know what to believe from what we're hearing and seeing of Patrick Mahomes because sometimes right, sometimes right. these things are just elaborate charades mm-hmm. to make you think everything's fine when it's clearly not and no human body can really accelerate healing. Sure. But it's it just because he's in the pocket doesn't mean he can't be really effective and it doesn't it doesn't mean that Andy Reid can't design things to increase his pocket effectiveness what is it how much is it really going to matter much more than than is it just keeping plays alive 
I think that's it. And also how often he gets to the edges of the pocket, Dan, whether by scheme or like you just said, keeping plays alive. He's the best second reaction thrower in the NFL. That just is what it is. He's the best at going off schedule, throwing from multiple platforms, extending plays outside the pocket. So that is something you have to look for. Can he do that? And if he can, what type of level, Dan, can he do it at? That's the most important thing in terms of his lower body mobility. But, but what they can do from the pocket, look, Andy Reid can coach. Andy Reid can scheme up any defense you put in front of him. So they'll have answers in terms of what they want to do in the pass game. But I also think the run game is very important. You go back to week 13, they rushed for over 100 yards. I think the run game will be a viable asset to them this week, just like it was last week against Jacksonville. When Mahomes got hurt and Chad Henning came in, then when Mahomes came back in the football game, they still ran the ball effectively. Kansas City is very good up front. You know, we talk about the Eagles offensive front, the Niners offensive front. We don't talk enough about Kansas City and what they can do up front. They're a very zone-based run game. So zone-based is outside zone when you're giving the running back options to bounce the ball or cut the ball back up inside. But they were moving people up front, and they're very athletic on the offensive line, linemen that can climb to the second level and block in space. So that's something I think that has to be part of this game plan. So you might not see the high-end throwing volume, but you will see the run game impact Kansas City this week. Why has Cincinnati had such success in their last three games against Kansas City? Well, I think a couple of reasons. They'll play a lot of two-deep zone, okay? They will play too deep. They'll keep the ball in front of them. They will not try to give Patrick Mahomes explosive play opportunities down the field. The other reason, I think, is they have matchup players for Travis Kelsey. Now, Trey Flowers is usually the tight end matchup for Cincinnati. He's going through a hamstring injury right now. But you have safety Von Bell. You have the rookie Dax Hill out of Michigan. Those are two guys with man traits that are physical that can challenge Travis Kelsey at the line of scrimmage. Because if you're going to play Kansas City, and we saw it last week, now the total receiving numbers weren't, you know, over 100 yards, but the amount of receptions Travis Kelsey had last week with Jacksonville not having an answer for that. Look, if you don't have a man matchup, I understand that. But then you have to counter. What are you going to do? You can't allow Travis Kelsey to get off the ball with a clean release. You have to disrupt him. You have to reroute him. If you have to walk out of the defensive end, then you do it. But you have to limit his production. And, can't, and Cincinnati has done a good job of that. They're excellent with their safeties, too. They're excellent with their safeties. They'll rotate their safeties the late. They will play a, a form of robber coverage. Because, again, against Kansas City, you have to take away inbreakers and crossers. That's where they want to throw the football, and Cincinnati has done that. We saw the injury report in Santa Clara, and Debo Samuel missed practice. Christian McCaffrey missed practice. Elijah Mitchell didn't mm-hmm. practice. And everything that you had said last week about the interchangeability of some of those yes. pieces and some of the, the formational and deployment mystery – is going to change when guys right. are limited. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have? Well, that's a major impact. First, for the run game perspective, they have to run the football in this game. You cannot have Brock Purdy drop back 35 times against the Philadelphia Eagles secondary. You just don't, that's not conducive to winning football games. They have to have a run game element. That's what Kyle Shanahan and this offense is at their core. Um, and it'll be interesting. You would hope, Dan, that all three of those players are up for this game. I, I would expect them to be up. How much usage they get. That's to be determined. But one thing I would watch for here, Dan, is how they create extra gaps in the run game. Kyle Shanahan is excellent at doing this. And the best way to describe it is they will use reduced formations, like we've seen from Sean McVay and, uh, you know, that coaching tree. And they will use trip sets and they will use stack sets. And what that does is it puts the defensive end in conflict. Okay, so if it's a defensive end now, do I widen 
to play the reduced formation. Okay, if you widen, they're going to run the C-gap all day long. That's what they're going to do. They're going to run power in the C-gap with Juszczyk and Kittle leading at the point of attack. Now, if you if you push that defensive end inside, now they got extra gaps on the perimeter. Okay, so it's kind of this counter game that Kyle Shanahan plays, and I think that's very important against an Eagles run defense that if you look at the numbers, they're not a top-tier defense in terms of run defense on the perimeter. And I think that's where Kyle Shanahan will try to attack more this week, which, again, as we know with this offense, will lead to run action in the backfield and play pass opportunities for your young quarterback. For people who, this, not, who aren't sure exactly, when you're describing reduced formations, yes. somebody's thinking, wait, there's still 11 players on the field. Okay, what does that okay. mean? Great point, Dan. So that means taking everyone and putting them inside the numbers. Okay, so you're wide, when you have a bunch set, you have three wide receivers and a tight bunch set, those wide receivers or tight ends are almost attached to the core of the formation. Everything is very reduced. And what you're doing against the perimeter, you're inviting d- defensive players into the box. You want them to come inside. That's going to give you more gaps. It's going to give you blocking angles on the edge. Instead of opportunity to pull tackles or to lead outside with someone like a use check so they can't cut off the football. And again, when you get off of that play action, you get boot. As we talked about before, Brock Purdy, he has more mobility, so you can't get him to the edges. But there will be a lot of games played with Kyle Shanahan versus defense coordinator John Gann in this matchup when it comes to the run game. How did you think Jalen Hurts looked last week? I thought it looked great. Uh, I didn't see anything, Lawrence, uh, that would point to having an injured shoulder. And this is a good thing to watch this weekend is the 49ers corners. Can they match up vertically against Philadelphia? You know, when we look at Philadelphia, it's the run game, it's the offensive line, it's Jalen Hurts and design carries. But they will push the ball down the field vertically. And Can they match up to A.J. Brown and Smith on the outside? Because you create big plays in a playoff setting and championship game setting. That's how you flip the momentum of the football game. And I really want to see what San Francisco does because you can't sit in too deep against Philadelphia. We talked about this weeks before. If you sit in too deep versus Philadelphia, well, now you're going to get the run game consistently versus a lighter run front. So I think there'll be a more single high coverage. That's going to put a lot of stress in these outside corners versus vertical route concepts. The Bears won the Super Bowl on January 26th, 1986. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do the math how many years ago that was, but I believe... <laughs> I, I, 37. 37 years ago. So where is a 9- a or 10-year-old Matt Bowen? I think it's 7 years old, yeah, right? How old are you? In, in 86? Uh, I was in 4th grade. I oh, was in 4th grade. 9 or 10, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. where where were you? I was at um, Marjorie Salyer's house. My mom's one of my mom's best friends. On the north side of Glen Ellen, we watched the game there. I remember Margie made uh, these cookies that were shaped like football players, right? And they had the frosting on them and all that stuff. I remember watching that game, and I had never played football before. But I remember watching that game and saying, this is what I want to do. I want to do this. I want to play football. And then the next year, that's when everyone in Glen Ellen and DuPage County started playing football because of what the Bears did in, in 1985. So my first year of football was 1986. Signed up for the Glen Ellen Golden Eagles. And we had like four plays. <clears throat> Ran a T formation in the backfield, but I was a quarterback. And <clears throat> Dan, I think I threw the ball one time all season, but it was a lot of sweeps and counters and I was stuff like say, that. You could probably run like hell if, if you had never played before and already you're a T formation quarterback. <laughs> it was T formation with sweep and power and like a kind of quarterback reverse. And I would boot out to the outside and and run. We had one play and it worked. We were playing, um, it was against Hanover Park and we did like a silent snap, right? 
So no snap count. And I kind of tapped the, tapped the center and he snapped it to me. And I kind of walked like three yards and no one did anything. And then I just took off running for like a 90 yard touchdown. <laughs> it's got to be on video somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Please tell me this is on someone's Betamax or VHS where we can watch a young Matt Bowen tricking the defense. I, I'll try to find it, but I'll tell you that that game, you know, with, with, with my friends back then, that kind of changed the outlook. Because, look, I, I grew up and I, everything I did until that point was baseball, baseball, baseball. I wanted to be a baseball player, play for the Cubs and the White Sox. It's all I thought about was baseball. You know, I tried soccer for a little bit, and I played goalie one time, and they scored like nine goals on me. I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. This isn't for me. So, And I hadn't started playing basketball yet. So when that when the we were watching the Super Bowl, I remember watching that game. I said, "This is what I want to do." And then after that, I started playing football. I love hearing stories like that. Matt, have an excellent championship Sunday. We'll talk to you next week. All right, guys, thank you. That's Matt Bowen. Looking forward to uh, continuing our football conversation with Mike Golick next on Bernstein and Holmes on the Score. Bernstein and Holmes middays ten to two on Sports Radio six seventy The Score and six seventy The Score dot com in Odyssey Station. Let's talk some football with Mike Golick here on the Bernstein and Holmes Show. He is on Twitter at Golick, the former NFLer, now football analyst. You heard him just last week. If you were listening to the Niners and the Cowboys on Westwood One, you heard him doing color. You'll hear him right now on the Score Hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Mike, how are you? I am doing well. How are you guys doing? We are doing great. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Before we ask you a little bit about well, what's happening this weekend or what happened last weekend, I'd love to know, after going through a whole season of watching Justin Fields, what did you see? Well, I mean, listen, I, I think the arrow's pointing up on, on him. I, I like the direction it's going, for sure. Um, boy, then all of a sudden you hear the, oh, maybe we should trade him, you know, and get a haul for that and start over a quarterback. And, and I, I, don't, I don't tweet often, but that one made me tweet and basically say, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, you know, let's, let's see where this kid can take you. We know he can run, he throws, he's got to improve his throwing some, but let's, let's see what they can build around him. You see, that's what's going on, you know, in the NFL, even with the, with, you know, the, the, the guys we call the top quarterbacks, Josh Allen, when he got Stefan Diggs got there, how much better they got. You look at Joe Burrow and you get Chase and T Higgins, you know, these are great quarterbacks, but they become even better with weapons around them. So, Let's see what you can build around Justin Fields. Whether you want to trade away that pick or not, that's fine. You'll get something for it if somebody wants to jump over Houston and grab a quarterback. But I, I am dumbfounded of the thought process of trading Justin Fields. So I, I think he's on the rise. Uh, I, I obviously, he needs to improve on his passing. But I, I definitely build around him. And what, what's the consensus there about it? I think that most of the fans really do believe in him and they're hoping that, that people can build around him. It's weird, Mike, because we've been having this kind of overarching discussion about how the league has changed. And it's changed from when you were playing, where yeah. now you're looking for the dual threat quarterback. And I, I feel like Dan feels the same way, that they've got the right guy and now it's just a matter of of improving and building around him and allowing him to grow. And I like the Burrow example included there because they literally asked Joe Burrow, what would you want more, a wide receiver 
or Panay Sewell or somebody to lock down that left side of the line. And he didn't hesitate by saying, get me Jamar. Give me my guy. Get me my guy. And the different, and he knew. And that's a confident young man in that regard. And I would love for to ask Justin Fields the question, if they, especially if they trade it and say, look at this, 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 this you know, panoply of picks that we have. What do you need, kid? I mean, and I would think a lot of people would say you need a wide receiver, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I would certainly lean that way. Now, listen, when you get in the first pick in the draft, you need multiple things, but you need to start building around him uh, to, to see where this can go. Uh, the, the, the thought process of trade him and get one of the surefire first-round kids, what the hell is a surefire anymore? I mean, are we kidding? I mean, we have no – it is a 50-50 shot on first-round quarterback. So I don't want to hear sure fires anymore. You got a guy that's improving the way he is, still got a few years left on that rookie contract, so you could work around that. And that's what you see, you know, with uh, with some of these teams. You know, they're still able to work around the rookie contract and bring in other guys. Now, eventually, you're going to have to pay some people. You know, the Jamar Chase is going to have to be paid, and T. Higgins, and obviously Burrow. So you're going to run into that at some point. But man, this is this is the time to strike while you still have a quarterback who you like, and I would imagine they would like Justin Fields and build around him, spend some money around him. Sea salt pork rinds, Mike. We got to have them. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> sea salt pork rinds. I am here for all of it. Yeah. All right, let let me ask you about this weekend's games, and yep. and and Championship Sunday is my favorite day on the NFL calendar. How surprised are you that Brock Purdy has been able to do what he's done, where he's thrown no interceptions in a couple of playoff games? All right, listen, it's unbelievably impressive. Uh, no doubt about that, of what he stepped in. I have said this all along about San Francisco. It has been Jimmy Garoppolo's shoulder surgery that has saved their season. Because if he didn't have shoulder surgery, he would have been traded. And if he got traded, you would have seen Brock Purdy very early in the season. We have no idea how he would have been early in the season as opposed to late in the season because of the injury to Trey Lance. But what Brock has been doing has been incredible, but it's a multiple, a, a multitude of things. Him, obviously, but Kyle Shanahan calling plays. Brian Greasy doesn't get enough credit as the quarterback coach, leaving the ESPN booth you know, to be the QB coach there. And then when you have the plethora of, of talent, the five guys that they have from uh, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Elijah Mitchell, Debo Samuel, and Brandon Ayuk, when those five have been on the field, they're 6-0. and And only six times of all five of those guys have been on the field, but they're 6-0. and So it gives Brock Purdy an incredible chance with high-level talent to make some plays. Now he's still got to make them. And then obviously they have one of the best defenses as well. Now Dallas made Brock look like a kind of a rookie quarterback in the first half. Dallas's first half on defense was lights out. Then they started getting worn down a little bit in the second half. And this filled off the Eagle defense. They can do that as well. They have four rushers with over 10 sacks, 11 or more sacks, four rushers. So they can get after the quarterbacks. Uh, they can cover on the outside. They can be susceptible to run a little bit to the outside and maybe the middle field on the pass. So let's see what Kyle Shanahan comes up with uh, to try and expose that. I was surprised that as great as he is, one of the best ever still, that Travis Kelsey wasn't defended better. And I would imagine that the Bengals are going to defend him better, bracket coverage, find a way to at least make his life 
more difficult with some of the the dig routes and the little rubs and stops and when he stems outside to get leverage inside. I know he's brilliant at it, but I am not going into a game allowing him to beat me. But, you know, so how does Cooper Cup get all those catches? How does Justin Jefferson get all those catches? I mean, it, it, it blows my mind. I'm with you. You know the ball's going to Cooper Cup. And there he is open and makes a catch. You know the ball most of the time is going to Jeff, Justin Jefferson, and there he is making a catch. Tyreek Hill, you know, same thing. I know he's got Waddle on the other side, but so it, it, it is kind of a head-scratcher, but Kelsey's not the only one where you know the ball's going there and it still gets there because uh, you can only do so much on defense, and that's where scheme comes into play. That's where mo- And that's the one thing that um, – uh, you know, certainly they can do well with motion. You could try and motion guys out so that opens it up a little bit. If you're motion in a back out, does that widen a linebacker so it makes a hole a little bigger in the middle of the field? So there are things you can scheme to help your uh, your your tight ends and your receivers. But like I said, you can say that about other players as well. It, it, it blows your mind that the ball still gets to a guy you know it's going. they're going to throw to. Lawrence mentioned pork rinds before, and they're certainly top of mind when I was looking at some <laughs> of these Southern recipe small batch pork rinds that you got. And the reason I bring them up is because you are representing Southern recipe small batch for Pork Rind Appreciation Day and their snacks or sacks for snacks sweepstakes and the association with the good work of the Gridiron Greats Assistance Fund. What can you tell us about how people can get involved and learn more? So, yeah, it, it's huge that Southern Recipe Small Batch is, is kind of teamed up with Gridiron Greats. I'm on the board for that, and, you know, that's something Mike Ditka helped start uh, to, to help out former players. So, so quickly, what people can win is a beautiful thing. If you go to uh, porkrindappreciationday.com, basically we're swapping out sacks for snacks. You, you pick any team that you believe is going to get the sacks, and each week someone is going to be randomly selected to win a case of pork rinds for every sack that team gets. Grand prize, five grand, and a year of pork rinds. Again, porkrindappreciationday.com. And the, some of the proceeds of that are going to go to Gritter and Greats. And I think a lot of people realize or, or think that if you played pro ball no matter when, you're well off when you're done playing. And it's just not true when you, when you talk about guys who played decades ago. Uh, the CBAs today doesn't really benefit those guys a ton. So a lot of those guys, they didn't make a lot of money, and they're getting older. And some of the simple things that they need, like you know, rides to the dentist's office or, or a, a physical exam or things like that, a mortgage for the month, uh, they're struggling with. And just like when we were playing, if a teammate was laying on the ground, you reach your hand down to help him up. Or I'd be on the ground, someone would reach their hand to help me up. That's basically what we're doing here. You know, we're raising money to help these go wherever they need. You know, how it doesn't matter how small it is, the guys who had played decades ago just, you know, don't have the, the, the money that some of the guys of today have the opportunity to make. So they need a little more help. And that's what Good Iron Greats is all about. Mike, I hate to make this whole thing about Justin Fields, but thinking about Championship Sunday and looking at the Philadelphia Eagles, it's hard to not look at what's happened with Jalen Hurts and project that out for Justin Fields. So how how have the Eagles gone about building this nest for, for Jalen Hurts to, to, to be an MVP finalist? Well, I mean, look what he's got. Again, I go, what do you have around him? You know, you got Devontae Smith, who you got in the draft. You trade for A.J. Brown, who has an incredible year. Goddard does a nice job at tight end. And, oh, by the way, you have the best offensive line in football. That helps. That helps a hell of a lot 
when you have that. So they put the pieces there, and the pieces have all come together. And like I said, Chicago's got more than a few pieces they need, uh, but other teams are like that as well. But what, what it adds when you have a guy that can run where you can actually call quarterback power runs where the back is an actual extra blocker in there, is incre- it, it puts so much pressure on a defense. The other side of that, obviously, is your quarterback takes more hits and is he going to get injured? And everybody says, name me the last running quarterback that played you know, 15 years in the league. And, and it's hard to do that, but we have also seen, as you guys mentioned earlier, a change in the NFL. From Little League all the way through college, you're seeing dual-threat quarterbacks more where you're using them in the run game, and then you want obviously need them to pass well. It still all starts from passing from the pocket. You know, getting outside of the pocket and making a play is gravy. Uh, but if you can make that timed play, three to five step to seven step, and, and put the ball on the money on that long out route, or, you know, drop it in somewhere on his own coverage. That's what you want, and then you build off that. But I, I, that's what you have to do. You've got to build around it. You know, they've got a good running attack with two or three different running backs in, uh, in Philadelphia as well. So they have built around it, and that's what the Bears need to do, identify the biggest area of needs that are going to help Justin Fields and get them. Mike Golick, thanks so much. Enjoy hearing you on Westwood One. Appreciate you taking the time to join us. You got it, guys. Thanks. That was a treat, man, having Golick on the score. That was fun. Being able to talk football. Yeah, if we, we were on a tight schedule, if we had another minute, I was going to ask about Sam Hartman getting a year out of him at Notre Dame because I know there's some alums that are very excited about the the possibilities there with getting a, a, the, the all-time ACC leader in touchdown passes. And how about a, an old-school defensive lineman evolved to the point of understanding – where the game is going. It's gone. not that hard. It really isn't. It's not that hard. It, it, we fight it all the time with people not understanding how NBA basketball is played. They shoot too many threes. <laughs> <laughs> or not understanding baseball. He's got a low batting average. That it, Sometimes it just it, it, it's always good when people understand the sport that they're watching. He's right, though. I saw the tweet. And it's funny to me because he doesn't tweet a ton. Like, that's not really the the modality that he spends his time on. And he was on fire about people saying that the Bears should trade Justin Fields. Like, I'd just like to remind people, and I'll put it in baseball terms for you, so maybe it helps out. Justin Fields is under contract control for the next three years. Because he's got two more years left on the deal. And then, and actually, if you want, you could say the next f- four years. Because of the option and then the franchise they, tag right, possibility. They can right. pick him up his fifth year option and then they can franchise tag him. So you don't have to worry. Like, the clock's ticking. N- not really. It is. It is but, it, but, not but not loudly. Really. Yeah. Like, you're fine if you do enough building around it and you saw some of the special stuff that that guy can do. And the 312 said, have Justin call in for who's your guy this year. Oh, this is Justin in Lake Forest. <laughs> My uh, guy is that TCU wide receiver. <laughs> that that would be awesome. Uh, hi, this is Justin from, um, let's just say the North Suburbs. North Suburbs. Uh, the Ohio State wide receiver, uh, Smith and Jigo. I can't really pronounce his name. <laughs> I think he's pretty good, though. I'll hang up and listen for my answer. Hi, I, I'm Justin from Hallis Hall. Um, can you tell me about the tackle from Northwestern? <laughs> right. 
that that's my guy. I'll hang up and listen for my answer. <laughs> we'll be doing it. We're here for him if he wants. Hey, coming up next, this is something we've meant to get to. This weird burgeoning possibility of neutral site championship games just because the NFL smells money. And they do. They smell a lot of money. So we're going to discuss it. I see some of the feedback already coming in via text 312-644-6767. It's Bernstein and Holmes here on The Score. Bernstein and Holmes. Middays 10 to 2. On Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Everyone talking about a neutral AFC championship game, not even thinking about you guys. How much did that motivate you coming into this? You better send those refunds. <laughs> Joe Burrow to Tracy Wolfson. Joe Shiesty's the dude, man. He's, he really is. He's that guy right now. He How just can you is. not love him? Yeah, neutral sites. A possibility. Hmm. Hmm. I'm stuck with how I'm in between on how I feel about this. Why? Because I feel like the team that is the number one seed or the highest seed that's left or lowest seed um, that's left should have the right to host the game. Like you go through the whole season trying to be at the top of your conference and then you get to it and you're like, yeah, like that. You got to come here. You have to come through Kansas City. You got to come through Chicago. Wait, not for a while, but you understand what I mean. Let's revisit what Mike Florio said with us yesterday with Layla Rahimi sitting in about this idea. The moment they embraced neutral site, I thought, man, this may be something that they they think about trying to do. And when they picked Atlanta, a dome, and Atlanta was the third choice behind Indy, a dome, and Detroit, a dome, that game should have been played outdoors if it was going to happen, Bills and Chiefs, because both teams play outdoors in an area where weather can be a factor. And we saw that weather was a factor in both games, really. And not that it determined anything, but there was weather in both games. Once they picked Atlanta, that's when I thought, this is just a test run. They want to see what this looks like. And when they touted last Friday the sale of 50,000 tickets in 24 hours, half Chiefs fans, half the Bills fans. That's when I thought they're telling us without really telling us that this is what they're going to do. And I mobilized at that point, started making some calls and talking to people. And it was very clear to me after not spending a whole lot of time on it. It's not like I had to put someone under the hot light. Folks talked fairly freely about the fact that forces within the league want neutral site championship games. They want that big game college vibe where you've got half the stadium in one school's colors, the other half in the other school's colors. You get the great reaction shots to everything that happens because every time it's good for one team, it's bad for the other. So sad Chiefs fan reaction, sad Bills fan reaction, happy Bills fan reaction, happy Chiefs fan reaction. I think that it's something they want to do. And people say, well, how do they make more money off of that? You make it like the Super Bowl. You you have cities bid for it. You get all sorts of other stuff because the cities are getting a bunch of hotel rooms filled up. They're getting a bunch of money pumped into the restaurants and bars and tax base and all that. So Super Bowl light is what the arrangement would be. And and I think that the the mere fact that they thump their chests about all those tickets being sold. It puts it in play as soon as next year. Not that they can get enough support by next year. Lamar Hunt, the Chiefs founder, was pushing it during his lifetime multiple times, and it never passed. But I think now they may think they have a chance to try to push it through. 
okay, the other part of my personality is like, yeah, this actually would be kind of cool for it to look like the CFP, where you do like have the, the stadium cut in half like Mike is talking about. And the problem is, do you end up making it like the CFP or the big bowls where it's only going to be in certain places? Because I feel like the Super Bowl, for the most part, should only, it should be a reward for the two teams that are there. And you should only be in New Orleans, Miami, Arizona, San Diego. Oops, sorry, Los Angeles. Like, those are the only places that you should be because they should be able to, like, live and enjoy February after all the hard work that they've done for the six months previous to it. I covered the one in Detroit. We had fun. You did? We had fun in Detroit. Yeah, we did. I know that they got lucky in Indy. And Indy is a place where you can have a lot of this stuff because their downtown is pretty much inside. Like, you can just kind of walk around downtown inside, but the weather was actually decent that year. And then the year it was in Dallas, the weather was terrible. They had, like, the ice storm. There There were ice storms in Atlanta when we were there. That was awful. That was one of the worst. But I also want the Bears, if they're going to build this new thing, that they should be... And I feel like that sets up perfectly for the, like, let's say the Bears open up whatever they're going to call it, Hallis Stadium in Arlington Park. This would give them an opportunity to be like, okay, here's your chance to show us that you can be a Super Bowl host. Here's the, you're going to get the AFC championship game. Here's your dress rehearsal, your dry run. Yep. And, and I feel like that's a really good way to go about it. I have a motivational issue, though. If, if, if we're already looking at teams who can't wait to find reasons to rest guys late in the year, and the quality of play in the NFL is, is pretty much horse crap once the mid-December Week 14, rolls around. yes. And if you're thinking, you know, is it, it changes the calculus of is it worth it to have this record, and obviously getting a bye is huge. But when it's you probably the most important part. When you start thinking about well, guaranteeing them, we'd have home field advantage. I just there's we. I know that there's going to be an unintended consequence of not having the extra motivation for that home game because of how much it matters. But I will say, not having to go on the road for a playoff game. Like let's take the situation with Patrick Mahomes. Well, but then you're going to have the issue where from where are both teams traveling? Where there's that's why Chicago, Indy, some of these more central Perfect. areas are going to cut down this idea because if you make one team travel all the way across the country and acclimate and all that, that that's going to make a difference and that's going to give the appearance of imbalance. The the argument against it, it it played out a little bit last week where if Kansas City would have to travel to a neutral site, it's literally one day less of treatment on Patrick Mahomes because. They're at home. You get that extra day. All Saturday, all Saturday is going to be is him getting treatment on his ankle. You got all of that time where if they were going to a neutral site, they probably leave on Friday night. Maybe they leave Saturday morning to get to the neutral site. And considering the way that the NFL does things, I am like I'm imagining some sort of smaller version of media day for this. Instead of going to the facilities? The 802 says, forgive my ignorance. How would the NFL make more money on a neutral site? 
Well, that's what Florio was saying, yes. that, that you're going to get the money from the municipalities who are going to be bidding on being host sites for the semifinals. That's part of it. You also get everybody's got to stay in a hotel. Yep. Like, it's not just one fandom that's going to have to travel to the game. Every fandom's going to travel to the game. And so not only, I mean, you'll you'll sell it out, and all of those people need hotel rooms. All of those people are going to be eating in restaurants. Some of those people need rent-a-cars, too. But the NFL, that's how the that's how the city's going to make more money. But the NFL itself, like you say, there's you're not just going to be gifted something like this. There's going to be a presentation. There's, there's going to be a wedding of beaks. You're going to have to pay beaks. Whatever happened to that guy? He's in. Being violated by a gorilla. <laughs> he is being really violated Sky by Skyboy Paul Gleason. Vice Principal, what was his name in Breakfast Club? Oh, it's not Skinner. No, he's not no. Skinner. That's with the boy. You get the horns. Yeah, that guy. Anyway. Yeah, um, the guy who lied about his bio. And wasn't he the guy? I'm trying to, what else? Die Hard. Die Hard. We're going right. to need more FBI guys, I guess. <laughs> that's right. Is, I'm in charge here. This is Agent anymore. Johnson. I'm Special Agent Johnson. We'll no try relation. to let when we commandeer your men. We'll try to let you know. We'll try to let you know. It's just like Nam. Sick, you. <laughs> yeah, but that that guy, Robert Davi, is a. <laughs> oh, by the way, and you guys can look for this since we're we're already into our 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 die diehard stuff. Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. No one in football looks more like the head of the SWAT team in Die Hard when he's sending in the car. Sending the car. No one looks more like that guy than Zach Taylor on the sidelines. Hit it again. Hit it again. I love that scene. Oh, my God. The quarterback is is toast. toast. Skypoint Clarence Gilliard Jr. Damn right. Sundown. <clears throat> Racist. Anyway, when you watch the AFC Championship game and you see Zach Taylor on the sideline, I'm telling you, he looks exactly like like his demeanor, too. It's not just his face and the headset. It's his demeanor. He looks exactly like the SWAT leader in Die Hard. Go ahead. Go look. And you're going to be like, damn it, Lawrence is right and weird. And you would be right on both counts. What was his name? Assistant Principal Richard Vernon. Vernon, that's right. Vice Principal Vernon. You'll get the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. The question I would have is, why are all of you in high school 30 years old? Yeah. Except for... Who, Ali Sheedy? No, the youngest one, Anthony Michael Hall. Even he was old. No, he can't... Chuck Nelson was like 42 or something. Yeah, he's still old. Because wasn't his next movie New Jack City after that? I think like I think it's pretty close on the production time of those two movies. I saw him in an airport. I saw him like completely you know, haggard and harried and running through, and he he's like dragging a bag and trying to figure out where his next flight was. And somebody comes up to him. He's and he's talking to the gate agent, and somebody comes up and goes, "Excuse me, Mister Nelson." And I just thought, like, "Oh God, this is going to be awful." It's an all timer. He's just going to wheel. And, and he he and he stopped, and he composed himself, and he said, "I'm happy to sign it on." Oh, that's nice. And I, but when I saw it going down, like I, because nobody else saw what was going. Oh shoot, that's that's 
as always, any celebrity sighting, it's always like, that looks like a really old version of blank. <laughs> always. Because you don't realize how much people age for the last time you've seen him in a movie. And, like, oh, it is, it is Judd Nelson. Like, oh, no. Because he was clearly not happy. But it was, it was actually a very impressive little moment to see him take a breath, take a breath, and, and be cool. I wonder if that, like, helped him out. You know, like, maybe the gate agent is like, yeah, who are you? And then, like, someone comes up and asks the guy for the autograph. Maybe he gets treated better. But seriously, every single time. So, uh, uh, cafe, outdoor cafe in Montreal. Like, that looks like a really old Tom Skerritt. Hey, Viper! Right. That's, Viper! Yeah, nope, that's, Why you got so many hats? It, it happened in Naples with David Strathairn, where he was sitting at the table next to us. And like, why? Do, first, I thought it was one of my doctors, because you know he's got that David Strathairn. I was like, that's is that is it, Doctor? Oh no, that's a really old version of David Strathairn. Oh like, no, yeah, Ed Harris. Well, you walk up on Ed Harris wrong, it could be a problem. What's he gonna do? Punch you in the, in the waist? He's like, he's tiny. So what? He's a bad man. Yeah, he kind of is. Oh, let me tell you my story about. I, I don't know if I can tell on the air. My my friend Paul was in a movie with him. And he said that he said Ed Harris was super in his character, and he was he was playing a marine. I forgot which movie it was or where what where they were, or maybe maybe it was like he was on set for some or the sets were right near each other. But but it was the craft services area. Okay, early call. It was like a, like a five thirty a.m. call, and he said, "Here comes Ed Harris in marine dress blues." Like the full uni with the sword and the white pants and everything. And he's, you know, he's got the, you know, his clenched jaw in character. And he, and he goes over, and there's like a continental <laughs> breakfast set up. And he, he's and he, doing he, like total like and, method. Right, like. And, and he's watching it and he, and he takes a half a bagel and he puts it in the toaster and he, and he pulls the plunger of the toaster down. And he's just sort of standing there looking at it. And he's just looking at it. And he's all of a sudden he realizes that like, it's turning. You know, there's there's smoke rising from it. So he, he like pokes at it. It pokes at it. It doesn't come up. And now there's a lot of smoke coming up. And, he, and then he takes the thing and he just smacks the toaster. Just, <laughs> just open handed slap of the toaster. And there's this new black charred bagel oh. comes shooting out. He realizes he's out of time. And he stomps out of there and he goes effing bagel. Oh, yeah. poor Ed Harris and his right. bagel. I'm like man. He said, why'd you why don't you help him out? Why don't you say, hey, I'll I'll, I'll bring you one on set. <laughs> That's I love that. I felt bad. I was at Nookies. This was like maybe at two Halstead? No, uh, the original Nookies. Um and it's God, maybe like three years, three or four years ago. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking and I'm like, I know that guy. I'm like, oh, let me eat my food. I'm like, that's Tim Kazarinski. Because obviously he's around all the time. Yeah, because he lives here. And I was like, I want to say something, but I'm not going to. I'm going to allow him to do it, to enjoy his bagel. He was in the play Old Jews Telling Jokes. That's a play? Oh, it's it's it, that's all it is. It's just gags. It's just jokes. And it is, uh, he was so hilarious. Like, I heard, my, the, the next day, my, my abs were sore. 
because really? I, was, I was laughing so hard. And these are these are old Catskills war horses, but they're great jokes. I mean, these these are and you know, Lederman used to do the, the recorded stuff. Yeah, that was always on. You know, because Mike Lederman, dear friend of, of the station forever, you know, and and a, and a friend friend, great joke teller. I mean, just a, and, a, and so he did some of the ones that were recorded. But Kazarinsky was in that show. It is great. It's wild, like when you see like the Chicago people, because I had a friend who lives like uh, Lakeshore East, and they had a party. Tim Meadows. Yep, he was in the building. He's he's, he's he's always like walking around. He was at Lincoln Park Athletic Club. All the time. You see him at the Bockwinkles. Yeah, you know, like hey, the ladies' man. Damn right. <laughs> Chicago's a great place, filled with weird people. Including Jason Leisure, who's going to talk football with us and talk about the Bears. Well, maybe not. Next, here on the score.